Um, my assistant today is Miss Laura McDonald. Stand up, Laura, let them take a look at you. Um, and she's just gonna help me out with a few things that require some writing. I think I'm a little loud. That require some writing and um, I didn't want to interrupt uh, you all by asking one of you all to write for me. So I brought my own writer, is that okay? Yeah. All right. Um, first, it is a pleasure to be here. Um, I appreciate the invite and I always appreciate the opportunity to address a very, very crucial, a very, very important, and a very, very needy conversation about race. Amen? So before we begin, I am going to go to the Lord in prayer because I want to make sure that he is um, okay with what we're doing here, that he is in the midst of this and that he is blessed in this because I don't want anyone to leave without their heart being pricked, pulled, tugged, and just, just touched somehow by what we're talking about. Amen? Most gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity. God, we thank you for a chance, God, to come in and just try to get to know one each other, to learn from one, one another, God. We're asking that you come into this place and you allow us to be open to each other, God. We allow, allow us, God, to be free to say whatever we need to say, be free to voice out our insecurities, be free, Heavenly Father, to just talk about the unknown or the unspoke of. God, you've called us to be a people of love, and so we're asking you, God, that we address one another in love, we converse with one another in love, and we leave out of this place knowing that we love every person in this room. God, I thank you, I love you, and I, I, I lift your name on high in this place. And it's in your son Jesus' name that I pray, amen. So first, um, I wanna start off by um, asking everyone to um, kind of sit tight and just reflect on an experience that you've had with race. And I want you to reflect on an experience that you had that, did, that impacted you, but it impacted you probably because you didn't say anything, probably because you laughed at it, probably because you ignored it, probably because you didn't even know that these, the people talking were actually being offensive. Think about those things. You can write them down because I saw paper around. And while you're doing that, I'm gonna share with you um, my most impactful experience with race. I graduated Southeast High School in the year 2000 with a 4.3 GPA. I was told I was incredibly intelligent and any endeavor that I sought, I would be able to obtain. Um, I went to Lincoln University, that is a HBCU, and there is nothing like a HBCU experience, I must say. Um, that's historically black college and university. And upon my arrival, I wrote my first paper that was seven pages, and I got the biggest F I've ever seen in my life. And maybe I'm over-exaggerating, but if you haven't seen something before and you see it, it's like the biggest thing you've ever seen. Like I could see a small spider and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is a tarantula. Like, what is that? So I got an F on the first paper that I wrote 
and I was angry. I went through some, some stages of grief because I graduated high school with a 4.3 GPA on a 4.0 scale. So I went to my instructor, Dr. Hermance, and I said, hey, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I am smart. I am intelligent. I can conquer and achieve anything that I set my mind to because that's what I was told. And he said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Kansas City. And he said, what school district did you attend? And I said, the Kansas City School District. I'm all proud with my chest out. And his response to me was, oh no, another one. Another one. And so I said to him, whatever do you mean by that statement? Another one. He told me it was yet another unprepared inner city child from Kansas City, Missouri School District. I was unprepared and it wasn't a phenomenon. I was unprepared and it wasn't an anomaly. I was unprepared because the systems and the structure made it that way. So I worked with him and I actually had to become his tennis partner because his other tennis partner had knee surgery and I had to fill in. And this is what he exchanged. I exchanged playing tennis with him really teaching me how to write something that I should have been taught before I got there. I had AP English, something that I should have been prepared and equipped with before I arrived on that college campus, but I didn't have that. So I wanna make this very clear before I go any further. I am not an ambassador for all young black kids from the rough side of town. I'm not an ambassador for all black girls who have come from a poor school district. That's not me. <clears throat> I am um, I'm the second born of seven children. And I am the only one of my mother's children who has a college degree. See, you get dealt a hand of cards and life tells you to play the hand you were dealt. And that's what my brothers and sisters did. Nicole, Alicia, Kiana, Carmen, Darwin, and LaRonda all just played the cards they were dealt. But I was a little different. I want my cards re-dealt to me. I wanted a new hand. I wanted a new opportunity to have the same advantages that everyone else had. The sad part is I shouldn't have to fight to get it, but I did. So where does this take us? What is this, what is this telling us? People find it hard to believe that the school, my school, my school district was in the center of something called structural and systematic racism. School districts are funded money according to the value of the homes 
in the neighborhood. So in the Blue Valley District, who lives in Blue Valley? Before I step on anybody's toes. <laughs> I mean, not that I care that I step on them, I just wanna know whose toes I'm stepping on. <laughs> Those homes in that neighborhood are greater than or equal to the amount of a quarter of a million dollars. So the students in the Blue Valley School District, they receive textbooks, supplies, technology, and even teachers that reflect that value. The Kansas City, Missouri School District is surrounded by dilapidated homes that value at less than $60,000. My mom's home is worth $57,000. So what does that mean? That means that I and my sisters and my brother received one fourth the education that the students received in the Blue Valley District. Is that not racism? Is that not a structural system that is put in place to allow the disadvantaged to stay in a place of being disadvantaged? So now, because I need some water. <laughs> Thank you. When I get passionate, my mouth gets dry. That's because I yell a lot. Right, Laura? Yes. I yell a lot. I yell at police. I yell at the mayor. I yell at city councilmen. I yell at everybody, except my one-year-old. I don't yell at her. She yells at me. Um, so I wanted to go through some definitions really quickly, but I want you guys to help me with these definitions because I realized that you can't go to Webster um, to find or dictionary.com, that's what's on my, my phone, that's my app. You can't go there to find a, um, a true definition of a word. I think that um, dictionaries, whether people like to say this or not, are subjective. It is the opinions or the understanding of the person who is in authorship of it. And so, because this is about you all and making sure that you all have a good understanding of racism, you're gonna help us with the definition. Is that good? Yeah. All right. So who wants to share their definition of racism? And don't all speak at once. And don't all speak more than once. We want everyone to be able to fill this space and fill this room. And you can give your name. I'm Melissa. It's Melissa. equal access to social goods and services based on race. You catch that? <laughs> Anyone else? Anyone else think differently than Melissa? Yeah. 
And that is, that's racism, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the denial, the denial that that is real is racism. Mm -hmm. I think I would always say, also say that it's the ability of some to think that they are more superior than others. Absolutely. I would say what we're getting at is it's attaching a value um, of what someone's worth um, based on race. I think our whole country devalues humans in general, but you're absolutely right. So racism usually involves the idea that one's own race is superior and has the right to dominate others. That that particular group that they're dominating is dominated on because they are inferior. I think, so I love the Old Testament because I feel like it gives, it doesn't sugarcoat a lot. And it kind of gives those hard punched words. And so we need to use those in here. It's the thought that another race is inferior. That they're not worth as much as you're worth. That their education should be one fourth of what yours is because their parents can afford a home as big as your parents. They're inferior. They're inferior. So do we feel good about racism? No, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Do we feel good about the definition of racism that we have come together and created? No one should feel good about that. You guys are on point, I love it. So there's um, some things that I wanna clear up. Um, equality versus equity. Who wants to give me a definition of equality? Given the same thing. Same, same amount doesn't matter. We're given the same access. Same. So let's say, what's your name? Amanda. Amanda. We're going to sum Amanda's up by saying the state of being equal. What about equity? Amanda already said it. So everyone Tammy? Who are at the fence. Yeah, so I love that. Everyone standing over here on this side is equal because they all have the same um, step stool that's the same size. Mm -hmm. But each person is a different size, so they can't see over the fence. And then for equity, every each person would get a different size stool, and everyone can see over the fence, but they each got a different size. So it's what getting what each person needs. Does that make sense? Yes, and that's yeah. that picture. I've seen it too. It's a it's a great depiction of the difference. So. Can we say that equality, I mean, yeah, equity is the quality of being fair and impartial, giving everyone what they need to be successful. Do we feel good about what we've said about equality and equity? Yes. 
Laura, do you feel good about it? Okay. <laughs> All right. And so racism is heavy and um, it's bigger than some of us know. Some of us that experience it more often than others, we see it, we know it, we feel it, we live it, we breathe it. And then some of us don't have the opportunity to. Some of us are privileged to where we don't have to deal with it. We don't have to see it. We don't have to live it. So we're going to, I'm going to give examples really quickly of different types of racism. Internalized racism is the personal, conscious, or unconscious acceptance of dominant society's views, stereotypes, and biases of one's ethnic group. Black people are loud. Black people are angry. Dark skin is uglier than light skin. And I work with an Egyptian woman and she had no idea what I was talking about when I said that. No idea. Because this is something that we've internalized, that black people have internalized that came from slavery. That the lighter skinned, lighter toned black people worked inside the house. And the darker skin worked outside. And honestly, that's the same thing that's happening now. There are some of us that are feared, and so we're left outside. And there's some of us who look like we're not that big of a threat. We're allowed inside. I don't know where I am. My mother is Japanese. My father is black. All of my sisters are incredibly light. And so I did have that complex, that dark girl complex, because I'm the darkest of my mother's children. But we, uh, we've allowed ourselves, people of color, black people have allowed ourselves to internalize the stereotypes that society has put on us. So I always thought my sisters were prettier. Now I think we're all pretty fly, but <laughs> I always thought they were prettier because they were lighter than me. That's the internalized racism. Interpersonal racism occurs between individuals. It is the holding of negative attitudes towards race, towards a different race or culture. Uh, Laura and I had coffee a week ago and we had a conversation. We talked about fear um, of, you know, the darker skin, black people, so they were outside. The interpersonal is when, when a white woman walks past a black boy with big pants on and a hoodie, she's clutching her purse. That's interpersonal. When uh, a 12-year-old a boy is mistaken as a 21-year-old, so he's gunned down because he's a threat, that's interpersonal. When black girls are looked at as needing less help, we don't, we're, we're not as fragile as white women. 
We're not as fragile as white girls. So we don't need protection. We can protect ourselves. And my father taught all six of my, all six of his girls how to fight. And he taught us how to change a tire and he taught us how to change our own oil, but he did that because of where we lived. You're absolutely right. We have to, we have to educate and, and strengthen our girls, period, not just black girls. And my father's mentality was, my girls are gonna be tough because they're my girls. But we're looked at as not needing protection. We're looked at as being oversexed. We're looked at as knowing grown things when we're children. This is interpersonal things that occur because of what society has done to us. These are the individual racisms that, that people of color, black people and brown people, that we experience on a, on a daily. We fight ourselves. Sometimes I go to work and I don't want to wear big earrings. Because I know they're going to say, she has those big old earrings on and I do what I want to do. <laughs> but these are the things that we internalize. Then there's a, a wider, a bigger view of this, which is the systemic racism. And this is relating to a system rather than a particular person or a particular thing. So let's talk about institutional racism. Who wants to touch that one? Right. That's that's ingrained, that's stamped, that's perpetuated in unfair policies, inequitable opportunities. So my example of my education or lack thereof, would you call that institutional racism? Because everybody in my neighborhood, besides my mother, was black. So what about structural racism? I think of it like, um, um, that it's, it happens without individual intent. I mean, there might be racist individuals working in the system, but it's part of the fabric of a structure. So um, redlining where people can live, where they can build their homes, who can buy a home, um, is structural racism. Right. And it survives beyond the people that created it. You know, J.C. Nichols is long dead. Oh, man. But, um, <laughs> but the um, truth is still the divided mind. Absolutely. I think I would agree with what she said, except she said without intent. I think Did you say without intent? Well, They're very intentional. Very specific intent. Um, or the way the um, homeownership programs were used in the 70s, or how the GI Bill put 
by certain soldiers and not other soldiers. But after it was created, after people are long gone, it's not, you have to work extra hard to undo it. It doesn't require the people who are realtors now to be actively racist because the system already exists. That's what I mean. It's not just individual intent, it's individual intent and all of the folks that perpetuate it just by continuing to do the same things. Okay. It's still intent. It is still intentional. Uh, when we become conscious, when we begin to wake up and stop living as though we are sleepwalking and stop living in um, the safety of our suburb, the suburbs that are in our minds, I think that um, we won't use things like racism is unintentional because it's very intentional. Structural racism is the normalized, well, it's, it's normalizing the array of dynamics of, an array of dynamics, historical, cultural, institutional, and interpersonal that routinely advantage, advantages whites while producing cumulative and chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. So unintentional, let me tell you what intention is when it comes to this. The school to prison pipeline. They're taking reading scores from inner city schools of third grade children and they are building, creating, manning prisons. Because by the third grade, if you can't read, you are headed to prison. When, when they, when they, um, when they kick kids out of school, or when they discipline children, at white schools, when they're acting out, that's what they're doing, they're acting out, they're sleepy, they're, they're being a, a grouch. And so he doesn't want to listen to me. In the black schools, we're using words like he's being defiant. My nephew, and I argue with this board for about two weeks, I went to every meeting. He took a pencil, a girl took a pencil from him, he took it out of her shirt pocket, and they suspended him for one day for sexual harassment. He was eight years old. He took a pencil out of a girl's pocket. I said, if you guys do not take that off of his name, an eight-year-old is not sexually harassing anyone. An eight-year-old. Not they were horse playing, not they were clowning around. He sexually harassed her by taking a pencil out of her pocket that she took from him. Everything that they do, every word that they say, every price that they put on anything is intentional. And it stays intentional because we stay asleep. And when I say we, I'm not talking about black people because we are awake. We see it every day. Some of us are afraid to talk about it. Some of us don't want to lose our jobs. Some of us don't want to lose our friends. Don't want to lose our connections and our networks. But this happens every day. I'm talking about you all that are privileged. Has got to wake up. 
We can't keep pacifying racism with soft words. Nothing about racism is unintentional. It's a system set up to separate, to divide and conquer and disadvantage people, disenfranchise people. So there's a short film and we only have a few minutes. There's a short film that I wanna play and then afterwards we can just have a few words of discussions about the film that's on here. I happen to know the facts. Now friends, I'm just an average American. But I'm an American American. And some of the things I see in this country of ours make my blood boil. I see people with foreign money. I see Negroes holding jobs that belong to me and you. Now I ask you, if we allow this thing to go on, what's going to become of us real Americans? I've heard this kind of talk before, but I never expected to hear it in America. This fellow seems to know what he's talking about. What are we real Americans going to do about it? You'll find it right here in this little pamphlet. The truth about Negroes and foreigners. The truth about the Catholic Church. Do you believe in that kind of talk? That all makes pretty good sense to me. And I tell you, friends, we'll never be able to call this country our own until it's a country without. Without what? Yeah, without what? Without Negroes. Without alien foreigners. Without Catholics. Without Freemasons. You know What's wrong with the Masons? I'm a Mason. Hey, that fellow's talking about me. And that makes a difference, doesn't it? These are your enemies. These are the people who are trying to take over our country. Now you know them. You know what they stand for. And it's up to you and me to fight them. Fight them and destroy them before they destroy us. Thank you. How many people saw the problem there? All the things he was saying Everybody who was a problem wasn't a problem until they lived on his street. All the violence in Kansas City is not a problem. And cops shooting unarmed black boys is not a problem because they don't live on your block. Bad schools because of low funding is not a problem because your children live somewhere where the value of their education is based off of your quarter of a million dollar house. Nothing is a problem for Americans until it's knocking on their front door. Nothing is a problem until it starts messing with their pockets. Nothing's a problem until it interferes with you. I think a, a good example of that uh, is with the opioid uh, what, what they call addiction. And it was, it's always been there, but it's not until it's affected the white middle class community has it become a problem. And now it's a problem. when they may have had a chance to do something about it, and they weren't interested in it. 
But then when drugs got out to the white neighborhood, then it's a problem. Then it's a problem. Everyone's up in arms about um, taking a knee during the national anthem. I'm asking the people of God, I'm asking the church, I'm asking everyone in this room, symbolically take a knee to racism, period. If it requires you to take a knee when you get home and pray for God to guide you on what you can do in this work, then you do that tonight. But nothing is a problem until it's knocking at your front door. When are we going to use, no, when are you going to use your privilege to make a difference, to change, to dismantle the racism that our country is dealing with and has dealt with for hundreds of years? Amen.